Well, I have very much enjoyed our times together this past month. I mean, our Super Bowl party, um, the uh, the Valentine's banquet, um, the last week our our lunch meetings around town, and um, if you I, and I've been very impressed with the participation of our church in this month. Now, if, if you're if you haven't been here, if you're if you're new today, what we've what we've done is um, this month as a church we've been emphasizing. The importance of together, right? Um, and we've themed this month Fellowship February. So each Sunday we've hosted events that provide a, a space and an opportunity for relationships to be built. And that's part of even why, like, if you're visiting here today and if you're used to going to a church where they spend about 30 seconds to turn around and shake a person's hands and we give a whole five minutes, um, that's, a, that's a new thing. But again, I, I want to champion this idea together and, and, and building connections with, with each other. And I believe God calls us to do that. And um, the participation this month has been, has been fantastic. And I think that's an indication of, of good things that are to come for this church. Now, now, when I moved here a couple months ago, I would listen carefully to what people said um, about the area and about our church. And one conversation I had, I was, I was up at the, a Christian bookstore... And, you know, I was buying some materials and um, got to talking with the, the guy who worked there and said, yeah, I'm new to North Dallas and um, I'm, I'm, I'm the new pastor. And he's, oh, what, what church? That's the Willowbend ch- Church. And he said, oh, I, 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 I went there a few years ago. And, uh, but he said, he says, you know, the, um, when, he, when he came, the, the reception that he had, the welcome that he had was so poor that his impression of the church was that this is a church that wasn't really interested in growing wasn't really interested in new people becoming a part of it. And, you know, now that was then. But, but I tell you what, when you're the new guy on the scene, that is not what you want to hear. I was like, oh. But let, let me contrast that, okay? So I spent many years um, working in youth ministry. And a lot of my former students are now adults and some of them live in the North Dallas area. So I was visiting with one of them. And one of them, he's, he's visited on a number of occasions, was even here, you know, on some of my very first Sundays. And he, and he told me, he said, you know, um, the church is much warmer now. The church is much more receptive. The, the first time that he came, it just wasn't really, really receptive. But, but there's a big difference between then and now. And that's just within uh, just a two-minute, uh, not two-minute, two-month time period. Um, yeah, if y'all could turn around in two minutes, man, that's that's great. But but that's that's um that that's a good thing. Um, so I, I say to you, church, good job. Um, you are doing an essential teaching of Jesus as He teaches us to love one another, and it is noticeable to people who are outside the church. And that is a that's a positive thing. You know, Jesus says. In John chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The distinguishing mark of a disciple of Jesus is love for one another. To love the way Jesus loved. That's how we are to be known. All right. So when people come and visit our church... They need to see that God is present and active in this place and that, that there are authentic and real followers of Jesus and the mark that we're supposed to have on display, what is, what is going to make it known is love for one another, 
right? And so that's something that we have to be intentional about. What's, what's going what's to show them that God is active in a place? Is He didn't say it's going to be great preaching. And he didn't say that it would be good music or, or, or innovative dramas. He said it would be love for one another. So keep it up, church. You've responded well to what we're told in God's word. And, uh, and someone thought it was worth mentioning to me. So I say good job. Now, along with events that are meant to provide opportunities to build and strengthen relationships, I've been sharing with you what God tells us in the Bible about this idea of together, about this idea of fellowship. Now, we started, um, you know, in the month of February, we started with the biblical fact that together is essential, that that to, to be a follower of Jesus means that you're going to follow him along with other people, and it is an essential element of what it means to have a relationship with God is this this idea of together, all right? Um, then we explored this beautiful teaching of Jesus where Jesus likens himself to a vine and we are the branches. Uh, Jesus says in that in John 15, he says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm in, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, a lot of times we read this passage um, from a very individualistic perspective. But as you read on in this teaching of Jesus, um, he connects abiding with him to abiding with him. He connects that to loving one another. And he, he reiterates that, that new command that he gives them. And then last week we explored Philippians uh, the, in the first chapter where it reads this. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now here we see that God wants us to strive for the sake of the gospel side by side. It, that's together. We, so, um, the, so you see this picture all throughout scripture. God is, re, is emphasizing this, this idea of loving each other and to do it with one heart, one mind in a, in a deep and sacrificial way the way Christ does. God doesn't just want us to love each other with like warm sentiments, you know, where we just kind of feel good about the idea of people. No, he actually wants us to love the way Jesus loved. And Jesus loved by giving of himself, all right? And, and that's, that's what we're supposed to do. So let's ask a rather juvenile question though now. All right, the the kind of question you often hear from a child or a teenager, um, if, if you've if you've if you've had them and they've they've been able to ask questions, oftentimes you hear this one: Why? Say, I need you to do this. Why? You can't do this. Why? Why? Well, you get so. Let's just ask that question: Why? Why does God want us to love one another? Why is love for each other emphasized in the Bible? Why is it that when the experts of the law, they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus, what is the, of all the commands, what's the greatest one that Jesus doesn't give them one? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But he goes on, he says, uh, this is Matthew 22. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I mean, he could have simply said, love God with all you got. 
but he intentionally includes love your neighbor. Why the emphasis on love for each other? Why does Jesus even make it a command? The, the, the Bible tells us that, to be, that, that sin separates us from God. I mean, that, that sin disqualifies us from um, being able to come before a perfect and holy God. The Bible tells us that, 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 that God is perfect, that he is holy, and that because of our sin, we are, we are far from it. And even our good deeds, even our good deeds are tainted. All right? Um, that, that, that's why it says in Isaiah that all my righteous deeds are like a, a filthy rag or a polluted garment. The, the best that I can do is still tainted with my sin. So sin disqualifies us from heaven, and sin condemns us to hell. You know, a lot of people struggle with this idea of a loving God that would send someone to hell. I mean, that that is a frequent struggle for folks. But, and I get that, but, but you need to know God is more than just loving. I mean, he's perfect. He's, he's holy. Um, I think a better question that we could ask is, why would a perfect and holy God let sinful messes like you and I into his presence? Like, like why would he do that? Uh, he, there's, we do not deserve to be in God's presence. Sin, it is a bigger problem than, than any man can fix on his own. We cannot make ourselves clean. And what God does to rescue and restore us to himself is absolutely incredible. He goes to great lengths to rescue us. His love for us is amazing. So I readily understand that because his love is so amazing, his love is so incredible, he's done so much. I readily understand why Jesus would say the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I mean, reciprocate the best you have for a God who's done so much to save you. I get that. But, but, so, but so if he's gone to such great lengths to rescue us, um, why, why is he concerned about how we relate to each other now? I mean, this is not our forever home. It, it, heaven is where we will be someday if you've trusted in God's provision for salvation in his son Jesus. It, it, this life is only temporary with forever still to come. Why does God have so much emphasis on this temporary situation for all of us? I mean, we... You, you, you probably just sit there like, like, like intuitively we know we ought to be good to others and, and that makes sense. But, but really, why does the eternal God call us to love one another? You know, to, probably, to properly answer this question, we need to step back. We need to zoom out and see the bigger picture. We need to ask the question, why does God even give us any commandments at all? I mean, if we're to, we want to understand why does he command us to love one another, well, why does he command us to do anything at all? Why does the God of the universe, the God who exists beyond time, the God who is eternal, the God who needs nothing, uh, the, the God who is not served by human hands, why is he concerned with the manner in which we live our lives? What is the purpose of God giving us the commandments in the first place? Have you ever thought about why God gave us the commandments? Read the Old Testament. There's some strange ones in there. Why does the God of the universe concern with how the Israelites 
um, lived in response to mildew. I mean, it's in there. There's just some, there's some strange things when you think of an eternal God and we're concerned about mildew. It's just, it's weird. Why? 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 Why does God give us the law? The law is basically two things. The commands of God, they serve basically two purposes. The first is to frustrate you to the point that you recognize you need a savior. The second is, is to push you and propel you into success. Listen, when you stand before the law of God, all right, when you stand before the commands of God, and this is before you step through the door of grace, the, the law is your enemy. The law is, is there to, to frustrate you. Um, the law was put in place so that um, it, it's, it, 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 it shows you how you have failed uh, in, in what God requires. It's, um, it condemns. It, it shows that you violated it. The law was put in place. It was placed in front of you to frustrate you into understanding that you need a savior and that nobody can keep the Ten Commandments. Nobody can keep the law. I mean, like when you read the Torah, you know, the first five books of the Bible, there is no way that in your own power that you can keep all those commandments on your own. It's, it's just not possible, and it's frustrating. It's designed to frustrate you to the point that you realize, I can't do this. I need a Savior. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Um, he goes on to say in that Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, you're so proud of yourself because you haven't murdered anybody. Good job. But I tell you, if you've harbored anger in your heart, if you've harbored resentment in your heart, if you've refused to forgive, if you've refused to, um, to get things right, you've committed murder in your heart. Congratulations that you haven't stabbed anyone to the point that they bled out, but, but, but that unforgiveness and resentment, that's a problem before a holy God. He says, you're so proud of yourself, you've never committed adultery, you've never physically cheated on your spouse but Jesus says that if you've ever lusted after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. And I guarantee every one of us at some point through the time of puberty, we lusted. I, I, I guarantee you that every one of us have broken the 10th commandment. Just look at it, the 10 commandments. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. We think the sin of covetousness is, is just wanting somebody else's stuff. That's a very shallow understanding of covetousness. To, to, to covet, to, to, covetousness is to be dissatisfied with what God has given you and done for you. And every one of us has done that. I mean, every one of us have either wished we were taller or wished we were shorter, wished our hair was straighter or curlier, wished we had more hair. Every one of us wish, wish we had more money, wish we had better friends, wish we had a different job. Every one of us have coveted at some point in time. Even if you were successful in keeping the first nine commandments, I'm certain we've all broken the tenth commandment. And at some point we've been dissatisfied with what God has given us. We've all disrespected God by being ungrateful and saying, God, you have... You have shortchanged me. You should have given me better. And the fact of the matter is, 
God has given each of us already more than we deserve. And we've been ungrateful. All of us at some point have wished we were more. All of us at some point in in our own way, we've said, God, you've been unfair to me. Thou shalt not covet. See, the fact of the matter is nobody can keep the law in their own power. It is designed to go before you and to, and to frustrate you to the point that you are going to quit trying to save yourself by your own means. You're going to realize, I can't do this. I need a savior. It's, it's meant to frustrate you so that you would stop trying to save yourself. And that's why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, where you realize that spiritually, I am impoverished. I am in need. I cannot do this on my own. And once you can admit that you are spiritually poor, once you can admit that you need a Savior, that's when Jesus becomes the door from which you to pass through the law. So I brought this uh, little frame to give us a, a visual all right, Jesus in John chapter 10, he says, uh, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You see, when, when you can admit that you need a savior and you step through the door of grace. See, before the law is in front of you, before the law frustrates you into recognizing, I need a Savior. When you can then trust in the Savior and step through the door of grace, the law doesn't go away. Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law is still there. But now the, door, now the law is not in front of you, it's behind you. But when it's before you, it's meant to frustrate you to recognize that you need a Savior. When it is behind you, you see them as principles to push you in your discipleship, to push you in your uh, walk with God, to propel you on into success and on into blessedness. That's the purpose of the law. If, you're, if it's before you, if you have not met Jesus Christ and trusted in him, the law is your enemy and it is meant to make you irritated. And that's why people get upset about um, like coming to church or being in Bible study and, like, and we resist it because... All of it, before you trust in Christ, it, it is calling out to you that you are in need. And we don't like that. But once you step through the door of grace and you trust Jesus, those laws are meant to, to bless you. They're meant to propel you into success. They are meant for your good. In James, uh, the, the book of James, uh, chapter 1, verse 25, It says this, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, the law, the commands of God, they are perfect. And and they bring liberty. If all you see are rules, then you probably think God's laws are strange. You, You probably see no purpose to God's laws. You you might just see you might even see him as like, okay, you got this this cosmic deity and he's created these funny little hoops for man to jump through for his own amusement. You know, and it would be amusing to him that you, we would love each other. And you know, but if that's all you see, that's a very shallow view. You you're probably seeing it because you haven't realized you need a savior yet. Such a view is far from the truth. God's laws are perfect. 
And God's laws promote and protect your freedom. They don't limit your freedom. People think that God's laws keep them from doing things that they want. No. God's laws actually empower you and enable you to to live in a more free manner than you would otherwise. And it says those who look into God's laws and actually live by them, they're not just hearers, they're doers. Those laws, those commands, they promote in you a better life that is blessed in all that you do. So now that we understand the reason God gives us commands in the first place, we can answer our first question. Why does God command us to love one another? The answer is because God loves you and he desires you to be blessed in all that you do. He wants good for you. He he, he wants this so much that he has commanded it that you love one another because this brings good to you. This brings redemption. Redemption is not the right word. This brings healing into your life. You know, um, you and I, we were created for relationship. We were wired to connect. In, um, in, the, in, the, in the story of creation, Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting verse because God says, let us make man. Who's the us? Most scholars, including myself, believe the us This is the Trinity relating to each other. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And he says, let us make man in our image. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God, it means to be created for relationship. Just as God relates to the Son, God the Father relates to the Son, and the Son relates to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit relates to both of them. I mean, just as they were, they they have a Trinitarian relationship in a oneness, we were created in that image. In Genesis chapter 2, um, God looks at his creation and he says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The first thing that is not good in God's perfect creation, the, everything's perfect, everything is good, one thing's not good. Man's alone. So he creates Eve. You and I, we were created for relationship. We are wired to connect. But that deceptive and that destructive devil the one who was a liar from the beginning, the one who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He deceives Adam and Eve, and sin enters into the world. And sin sin messes up a lot of things. It messed up our relationship with God, and it messed up our relationship with each other. Sin messes up a lot of things. And God sent his son Jesus to save us from sin and to restore that which was broken. And so through Jesus, we can have a restored relationship with God. But God also desires that through Jesus, that he would restore our creation the way it ought to be. And that we would have a restored relationship with each other. It's for our good. He commands us to love one another. And that command to love one another, it's a command that actually helps bring about your own healing. God heals us in the context of together. There's this clinical psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson. And he writes a book called The Anatomy of the Soul. Let me read you a little bit out of his book. Um, He says that when a person is honest and relates in conversation with affirming, interested listeners that the person's brain 
actually goes through a reconfiguration where it is healed and made stronger. That in, in close relationships where we can be honest and people can, can listen well, science has found that our brains actually reconfigure and are healed. And I tell you what, I don't think any of us got through junior high without some wounds. I mean, I, I talk to adults all the time, and a lot of their hang-ups go back to the things that were done to them in grade school, in junior high, and in high school. Mean things people said, um, not, not being accepted, being left out. We carry a lot of wounds from that. God wants us to be healed. And even science says that when, when we are in conversation, and we're, we're sharing honestly, and it takes a bit for us to get to the point where we can be honest with folks, that there's trust. If I'm going to share with you my hurts, what are you going to do with that? i got to trust you. You don't get there just like that. Sin breaks us apart spiritually and relationally, and God restores us through meaningful relationships centered around His Son, Jesus. Your brain actually gets stronger when you connect with others in God's church. James 5.16 and we don't have time to unpack this because we have potluck. We got, we're, we're like, we'll unpack this later. But listen to this verse. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you see the connection between God's healing in our lives and one another? Some of the most important and life-changing ministries that go on in our church are like our life enrichment class, and I hope that it becomes classes soon. The, the life groups, places where, where we can be together, develop relationships where we can finally get to the point where we can be honest, and people can love and care, and God can do the work of healing us. If you want to see good, you want to see healing, you want to see life change happen for friends and family, the best place to see that actually happen is in small relational environments that are centered around God's Word. Large groups like this are wonderful for inspiration. But but life change, God brings that about in the small things. And you look what Jesus does with His 12 disciples. He he preached to the masses. But who was it that changed the world? There's something to what Jesus does in the context of that small relational environment. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly excited about confessing my sins, especially to people that I don't know well. I don't know. Maybe some of you are like, you just love throwing out your dirty laundry and like, not me. Not me. I, I want to have a sense that I can trust you. That, that I'm safe. That you're not going to take the darkness in my life and, and, and use it against me. We all got stuff. There's not one person who is even close to perfect in here. Not, not even close. Myself included. It takes time to develop trust and understanding. And I think that's why God commands us to love one another. 
Because if he doesn't command it, we would probably bail on each other at the first sign of discomfort or a threat. And we wouldn't, he, we, he wouldn't be able to complete the work of healing in our life. So he says, I command you, love one another. Yeah, but they, 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 they frustrated me. They made a decision I didn't like. I command you, love one another. That's how they're going to know you're mine. That's how they'll know you're my disciple. I command you, love one another. It takes time to develop trust and understanding. God's original plan for us in creation before sin poisoned us was for us to live in close relationship with him and close relationship with each other. And then the grace of Jesus, it leads us back to both of that, a restored relationship with God and with each other. I find it absolutely marvelous that our loving Heavenly Father commands us to do the things which lead to our good, which lead to our restoration. They're not silly little hoops to jump through. They are life-bringing. They're not suggestions. He says, he says, I love you, and I want you to have life and have it abundantly, so I command you, love one another. It's just wonderful that he works that way. So, let me go ahead and invite my musicians back up. We've talked about the uh, Jesus being the door. Every person has offended God. Every person has sinned. You might not have done anything that warrants you going to jail, but you have not done anything that warrants you to come into the presence of a holy and perfect God. None of us have. All my righteous deeds are like polluted garments, filthy rags. And so I just, in this time, as we're about to sing back to God, what about you? Where are you? Have you been living a life where, where the things of God are just frustrating, they, they call out to you, letting you know that you're in need and you just, you don't like it, you want to be self-sufficient, I want to do it my way and it's frustrating, I cannot do this on my own and today what you need to do is to let those laws of God beckon you to the Savior and my invitation today is maybe today's the day that you trust Jesus and you step through the door of grace. And now these things that used to frustrate you can become a part of God's design to restore and heal you. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's only one way to a restored relationship with God. And that's through Jesus. And you have to receive that. In the book of John, it says, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gives the right to be children of God. Have you stepped through the door of grace? Have you, at a point in time in your life, said, God, I cannot do this. I cannot fix my sin, but I believe in your son, Jesus. I trust what he did for me on the cross. I believe in his resurrection God, I need you to save me. There's no magic words. It's all in the heart. Have you done that? 
So I'm going to ask us all to do this. And this is just a moment to connect with me as your pastor. But I want you to all just bow your heads, shut your eyes. And if you're one today, and let me, I want you to keep the lights up for me because I, I want to see people. But if you're one today, you say, you know what? I've done religion. I've done it on my own. But I don't know that my soul is secure for heaven. And, and, and you would li- it would be good for you to have a conversation about what the Bible says about being saved. So I want every eye down. But if you would like to connect with me and let's talk about what the Bible says about salvation, how do you step through that door of grace? I want you to make eye contact with me so that I could know who you are and we can have that conversation. So with every eye down, I'm just going to count to three. And at the, at the count of three, if that's you, just make eye contact with me. All right? If, if you need to know what the Bible says about being saved from your sin, you look at me. So on the count of three, one, two, three. That's good. That's good. Are you looking at me? Okay. Thank you, brother. Thank you. We will talk. Good. Good. God wants you. He doesn't want you to live in frustration. He wants you to come and realize you need a Savior. That's good. Are you looking at me? Good. Thank you, brother. Father God, I thank you for these for the courage that they had to, to admit a need that they, they may in fact have. And I pray that in the days to come that we could connect and, um, and have an understanding of what your word says. So that they might have the salvation that you promise. And for the rest of us, Father God. We are prone to wander. We are so prone to seize control and do it on our own. Father, restore us today. And thank you for being that good shepherd who brings us back. Thank you, Father God, for what Jesus did for us on the cross and what he does for us in our daily comings and goings. Father God, I cannot love you enough for what you've done. But it's a joy to give it my best shot. Father, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.